you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 43 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week you will recall that we had an interview with two representatives of the court service, solicitors Patricia Hickey and Gary Lee. And they told us about all the wonderful work they're doing to try and boost inclusivity in the courts, make it more accessible for people who need to access justice. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear from the practitioner's point of view because you wouldn't be aware necessarily of that yeah, work going so on behind the scenes. Let's say here, here to the wonderful work they're doing. Well, today we are going to talk to another solicitor and this is Barry Creed, who is a partner in McDermott, Creed and Martin. Uh, as the legal year came to a close at the end of July, Gary placed an intriguing post on LinkedIn in which he challenged in 20 bullet points various different issues that are occurring to the legal community and the legal profession and what it's like to be a solicitor in practice. He has loads of ideas and we said we got to bring that man in and have a chat with him. Mark, are you looking forward to this? Definitely. I think he's a very thoughtful individual. Very thoughtful I, I like individual. I liked his 20 points. Yeah. yeah, I think what Barry has to say is going to resonate with a lot of people. So stay tuned, folks. It's going to be a really good interview, I think. But first, we are going to discuss three cases that you have identified on the Decisis website. The first case concerns a financial institution and a mortgage over a property. Uh, and this was to do with the exercise of the power of sale. Uh, the register owner applied to the court for an injunction to stop the auction of this property. Uh, this is the case of Farrington versus Promontoria. And this is a decision of Mr. Justice Simons in the High Court. So, as everybody knows, if you have a, a mortgage or a charge over a property, then, you know, if you don't keep up the payments, the mortgagee or the chargee is entitled to step in and sell the property. In this case, the registered owner obviously felt, you know, I, I'm, I need to try and stop this. So he applied to the High Court for an injunction to stop the auction and raised whatever arguments he could. But the bottom line here was the fact that it wasn't his own dwelling house. It was a dwelling okay. house, but he didn't live there. And in fact, it had been vacant since 2018. So, it, you know, the first test when you're looking for an injunction is there has to be a serious issue to be tried. So in circumstances where the, the, the mortgagee was able to show that it had the statutory power of sale, that that had arisen... There was no prejudice for the borrower, okay. and so he failed at the first hurdle. Our second case is also a decision of Mr. Justice Simons, uh, and this is to do with the Residential Tenancies Board, and they ruled that a notice of termination was valid where the landlord had received a complaint about antisocial behaviour by a visitor to the property. However, the tenant appealed this decision to the High Court and grounds but they could not have prevented the behaviour in question. I'm very curious about this case. This is the case of Ihea, I think it is, our IAHA uh, versus yeah. the Residential Tenancies Board. Uh, and as I said, a decision of Mr. Justice Simons. I think it's IAHA and the Residential. Okay. Yes. And the, um, yeah, this is a case that the, I mean, obviously one of the many um, grounds upon which you can seek to, um, to evict a tenant or exclude them from the property is they're engaging in antisocial behaviour, particularly, I suppose, where a landlord owns a number of properties that are near to each other and there are complaints from tenants of loud noise or drug use, whatever, the sort of activity you wouldn't necessarily want to have nearby. I, we, I, I'm not saying that 
those, that's the particular <laughs> behaviour in this case. So the next but, time you come into my house and hit that karaoke machine again, I exactly. can ask you to leave. Is that what you're saying? I, I, I don't think that'll go as far as the, the, the tendency sport. <laughs> but the issue in this case, and the reason why it was um, challenged in, in the High Court, was that the antisocial behaviour complained of was not by the tenant herself, but by another person in the property. And she said that well, there was nothing she could have done. She, this, this was antisocial behaviour that had taken place that she couldn't have known about in advance. She hadn't acquiesced in it. And in the circumstances that the, um, the notice of termination wasn't valid. And that challenge, in fact, was upheld by the High Court. They have said that really where in the circumstances where the, the tenant couldn't have done anything about the antisocial behaviour, the, the, um, the, the, yeah, that, the, sounds, that sounds like a just outcome. Yeah, I think All right. definitely the right outcome. Yeah. Okay, our final case is a criminal one involving uh, whether there had been a conviction of fisheries offences. Well, there actually had been a conviction, but the sentencing court ordered that the offender's catch and equipment be confiscated. The value, however, of the confiscation amounted to over 350,000, huge amount of money, a big loss for this poor fisherman. And the person in question claimed that the amount confiscated was disproportionate and he appealed to the Court of Appeal, uh, which considered this issue. This is the case of the Director of Public Prosecutions versus May J. Vogel, uh, and that's a decision of Mr. John Edwards that's in the Court of Appeal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're really giving me easy names to pronounce tonight, my, Mark. My Vogel, I think. Anyway. My Vogel, OK. <laughs> anyway, so the offence here was an offence under EU law, and it was concerning what they called unlawful grading equipment. I think what appears to have happened is they had equipment that was used to grade certain fish and throw back certain fish, and apparently that is an offence under EU law. But the relevant uh, directive also provides for confiscation, uh, for a confiscation order. And in the sentencing court, the, the judge had been told, I think, by both parties, that the, or, or, or sorry, maybe by the prosecution, that the confiscation order was mandatory. Now, in fact, when that was appealed to the Court of Appeal, they they read the statute again and said, no, that that was a mistake and that that shouldn't have been said to the to the sentencing court. So they said that really where where the, I think the catch was worth nearly three hundred and fifty thousand, and then there was equipment seized as well. That in the circumstances that was disproportionate to the offence. And so they sentenced again to a, a more moderate. Fair enough. Okay, back shortly with solicitor Barry Creed. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Barry Creed, who is a solicitor and partner in the firm of McDermott, Creed and Martin. Am I correct? That's correct, Peter. Yeah, and uh, Barry, the reason we invited you in here today was there I was looking at my LinkedIn feed and at the end of term, just as we were getting to the end of July and we were all thinking about maybe heading to Bundoran or to Ballybunion or somewhere to get a break for a bit of a break, there you had 20 points, 20 reflections on the legal year. And it was almost like I was thinking in terms of, you know, the 95 theses nailed to Wittenberg Cathedral's door. 20 points about law that you wanted to bring to all of your colleagues. Tell us about that. Where, where did that post come from? Little did I think, Peter, when I sat down, I was sitting in a delayed plane in Gatwick and feeling kind of sorry for myself. We were the first, was the first week in August and term had finished I was sitting there on a Sunday evening and I was just reflecting over long term, great term, really enjoyable, but probably the hardest I'd put in in the 20 years I'd been in the business. Unusually, I'd heard the same thing from colleagues, both young colleagues, 
old colleagues, very senior seniors. Uh, and most unusually in terms of how the diary worked out, I ended up at hearing an awful lot more than I ever would have done prior to that. And normally speaking, you wouldn't really notice that, but we had a couple of changes in our business. We lost one key personnel. And all of a sudden, you notice the impact and the pressure that that brings upon not only yourself, but those around you. Now, the joy of Radio Barry is that people don't have to look at us, which is, which is wonderful. Thank not God. your case, but certainly in my case. Um, so describe for our listeners, you're, you're a relatively young man. How long have you been in this legal game? I'm 47. I'm out of 20. I qualified in 2002. Okay, so, so you have I'm, loads of experience, okay? And, and therefore, when you kind of say that things are changing, it's getting harder, it's getting more difficult, you're having difficulties recruiting staff, um, you believe you're a great fan of mediation. There's loads of points that you made. Um, you're speaking from a position of experience. So will you tell us, why do you think the profession is getting harder and more difficult? I think people are getting more demanding in terms of clients. I think people are under a greater degree of pressure. I think the economy looks brilliant on the outside. Uh, I think in reality, it might be slightly different. Uh, there is a slight bite coming into it. People are looking to get things done faster than they would have been a number of years ago. There is definitely post the pandemic, I think there was a lull. Then in the last sort of nine months, I think there was a real, both the judiciary, the courts, practitioners really put shoulders to the wheel. I think there were huge pressures put upon people. And at the end of the year, people just stopped and went, whoa. I'd never seen, I mean, in your usual places, Peter, where I'd sometimes see you between Christophs and Third Space, never seen so many people at the end saying, look, I just want to stumble across the line. And I was very much one of those people. When you say people are more demanding, do you mean that they're being unreasonably demanding? Or do you mean just that, 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 that there's more call on your time? I definitely think in terms of the commercial sector and in terms of litigation, I mean, some people would give out about this, but I think the courts are more demanding. But in many respects, we probably called out for that. Hmm. Now, you work largely in the commercial court and the, well, you, you work... In between in, the chancery, yeah. you know, I managed but, to fall into an area mm. about 15 years ago. Mm. But, uh, the, but well, well, I suppose my point is the commercial court is specifically designed to deal with litigation quickly and efficiently and it makes very strict demands on practitioners in terms of getting papers in and that kind of thing. Is there a distinction in your experience between the commercial court and other bits of the high court or do you finding it across the board? I think if anything that's probably been diluted somewhat because mm. in circumstances the chancery list which would be my other sort of go-to place would also be equally demanding. I mean you have excellent practitioners who now run those who've been elevated to the bench who run those courts and they run them in a fashion pretty similar to how they run their practices which is good for in the large part good for everybody but it is demanding and these are people of absolutely exacting standards if anything, I think that forces us all to step up. Yeah. And I mean, if you're running a small team, it's particularly difficult. Hmm. Okay, can I just go to some of the points? These are great, Barry. They're really good. Uh, like, for example, you say, point number 13, uh, I'm not sold on the work from home model at all. Now, I'm sure you have loads of solicitors are saying, you know, it's, it's kind of hybrid. It's great. I can do a few, hour, a few days at home and then I can come in and meet my colleagues and all that. You're not a fan of this, are you not? I, I, I had little did I think when I put thoughts on paper and put them out. Um, I mean, 175,000 people, not in my wildest dreams that I ever think it's anything interesting enough that 175,000 people would look at it. The feedback has been very mixed on a couple of different things. Um, I don't know about either of the rest of you, but a lot of my uh, feed on LinkedIn relates to recruiters and recruiters would come back and say, that's an absolute suicide statement in mm. terms of who you're going to hire because people will instantly. But I mean, from my perspective, notwithstanding 
the fact that you can have remote courts. How do you have a litigator who wants to work from home? Like in the large part is particularly difficult. And what we've learned, we lived a charmed existence. I've, one of my partners who works side by side me is 10 years younger than I am. And he's with me since he was a trainee, Nick McStay. And Nick had just commented, we lived a charmed existence because unlike most other firms, from when I opened in Dublin about 11 years ago, we had pretty much the same members of staff for those 11 year period. We lost one super employee to our office in Sligo, um, Darrell Conway. But prior to that, we had had the same legal executives same solicitors and support staff who would come in, one or two very bright people who are on the cusp of trainees. And then all of a sudden we lost one on the apple cart and you think you're great until such time as one part of the business is taken away and then you realise, whoa. Okay, mm. and you've struggled, you've struggled to replace that. Okay, let's look at another one here. You said, you talk about the fact that lawyers are fragile and burnt out. And you said, don't believe the social media profiles. What do you mean by that? Absolutely in terms of that. Um, I think as a profession, we all wear pretty hard cloaks. And I think there's, it is dangerous to come across in any ways vulnerable. And I have to admit, I didn't in any ways, I wasn't vulnerable when I put that out. This is just a comment in terms of from colleagues and good colleagues who I would have, you know, come in contact with in the previous year. I do a little bit of regulatory stuff and people who had found themselves in difficulty, probably somewhat unfairly, and the pressure that they found themselves under, that brings it to a whole other dimension. And people of who are practicing for a period of time, I think it's a bit you know, sad to hear them say, look, God, I'd love to do something different. Mm. But when I see all those wonderful smiling faces on LinkedIn <laughs> and Twitter and people who look like they're having a great time, am I, 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 I getting this completely wrong? Well, I think, look, it's, it's, you have to put out a persona because remember what LinkedIn is in the large part. LinkedIn is, is an advertising. Mm. It's an advertising it, form. It's like the curse of hello, isn't it? People who, who want to show that they've got the perfect lives and they, uh, they're, they're basically uh, below the surface. Things aren't necessarily quite as wonderful as they were. And I think that's a very honest statement. Mm. That is exactly how it is. Point number seven, Barry. Sad fact, but the blunter and more direct you are, the more likely you are to get things done. I think I'm not particularly proud to say that, but I think I've become more robust as the years have gone on. And in some respects, I would have found that the more direct you are with both colleagues and elsewhere, probably the more likely you are to Is the achieve profession becoming faster. very aggressive? I think it's been aggressive for a period of time. And I think if you can manage to control that aggression, I mean, there's no need to ever uh, wander into the realms of being unnecessarily rude. But on the same hand, you can be direct and, you know, if you can say something in five minutes, let's not meet on three occasions to do so. Okay. You say you're still a fan of the split profession. Um, whether that's unpopular or otherwise, I would be. I think one side of the house brings something completely different to the other. Certainly, that was one of my focuses in terms of the, the last term with a number of different trials. And I mean, I was very fortunate. I worked with people who I would consider to be at the absolute top of their game. And... I do look on and a very good advocate, I think, is something so special. And their ability literally to turn a case, not quite on the five pence, but close to it. And I know I personally don't have that. I wish I had it. But I mean, I would have had a different career path if I, if I felt that I did. Uh, I, I do. I think that barristers bring something in terms of you're probably more analytical. Um, and in those circumstances, I think the client benefits at the end. What you aren't, of course, even in court is you're not client facing. And I say that in circumstances whereby you've got a solicitor sitting at the front bench who's looking down at the client who's watching how the case is going. So you've got a barrister who never... I mean that, mm. absolutely. 
Uh, and I mean, some of the most talented people at the bar that I'd work with would all say I could never be a solicitor. But um, I mean, do you bar- use barristers for a number of different... I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, you, you talk about somebody who turns a case on a fivepence, but I mean, people use barristers for other purposes, like writing opinions, sort of specialist legal advice and that kind of thing. Do you, you know, in, in terms of the range of people you use, is, 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 there, is there room for merging the professions or a, t- a half merger or the hybrid um, model that, that was being touted a few years ago? I mean, you talk as if it's a, it's a sort of binary issue, but I, I mean... I think there's room for chambers if run mm. properly. I right. think that would be of major benefit um, okay. to both the profession and indeed Joe Public. I think if you could have in-house specialisations doing particular things, you could turn it out an awful lot faster. And is that having, have you dealt with London Chambers and that kind of thing? Or are you just observing? The, the, I've had an unusual, again, an unusual number of years, which sort of brought me all over the place from Norway right through to Malta to, to, to London in particular and the Isle of Man, most unusual place. Um, and that's why I would definitely think that there is, uh, the London model I really like. I think how they do it and the fact that you can go and you have, for want of a better word, a point of contact in terms of a senior clerk if you can't get the person that you want, if you, know, if you can't get a Mark, if you can't get a Peter, you will go to somebody to say, well, here is somebody that I would recommend to do that. And I, I, I am, I think there would be a benefit for all of us in terms of that. I don't think it'll happen. I think we've talked about it for long enough and I don't think that it particularly will. I think there will be interest groups on each side that won't want to do that. Okay. Barry, another thing you said, which I found interesting and kind of intriguing and I'd like to tease out with you. You said the title senior counsel should be bestowed sparingly. Well, there's no point trying to be delicate at this point in time because I mean I've taken the what criticism. You mean by that? I've taken the criticism from from various parties. I said are you to Mark, solicitors, or are you talking about barristers I, here? I, I said to Mark just before you walked in, Peter, that uh, it, it was one of those unusual ones whereby some of the most capable people I know who were at the most recent call emailed me subsequently. Said, "I really hope you're not talking about me in terms of that," and I genuinely wasn't. I just think for me, and maybe this is of my my age and vintage, the title senior counsel was on the basis that it. it Probably wrongly so. It signified advocacy and people who were within, you know, within court. And I do think that elevated it to something. I know you've got a slightly different thing in France where you can have a maître who, you know, who, who is an expert in a particular area. We now have that. From my perspective, I, I, I would stand over. I mean, quite open and honestly, do I think I have or will gain the knowledge base to be senior counsel? I don't particularly think so. But I'm not knocking myself in terms of that. So are you specifically talking about solicitors being made senior counsel in terms of, you know, perhaps there's a, there should be a different type of senior solicitor Mm -hmm. as opposed to a senior counsel? I'd always associated the title senior counsel with advocacy. That was probably my mistake. I mean, but I would stand over that, that I thought, you know, for, for, I think for Joe Public, we need to educate them to say, look, that these people may not have been in a court, but there are fabulous barristers who are senior counsel who give tax opinions, um, make a fortune, never go before a court and they're senior counsel. And the same thing applies to solicitors. So it's not exclusively, I think it was taken up by some of my colleagues as a direct pop at them. It wasn't, but it was, you know, it was a comment that I, I thought, okay, the more you have of a particular thing, I think the, the, the less prestige that goes with it. Okay, fair enough. Um, and, and does that mean that, let's say, for example, you would use, for example, a junior counsel if you have a particularly strong relationship with that person and you don't automatically bring in a senior counsel. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose this is one of... Briefing is a matter of habit. And that's, I suppose, been one of my... uh, I found it difficult to break that habit that I would have certain people who I would have built relationships with who I would literally trust to the the end. I've been very lucky from when I came to Dublin. I 
formed relationships with people who I considered were my professional better. They were, you know, absolute experts in particular fields. We've managed to keep that relationship. There are occasions where I can't afford them and I've cut my cloth accordingly, but I would say that to them. Um, but yes, no, I, I would have a set, uh, not quite stable in terms of who I go to, but if you have people who are personal, good with clients, that's a huge thing. Somebody will never let you down. I think sometimes the, the phrase a safe pair of hands isn't really given uh, as much importance as it should. Mm. Let's tease that out a little bit because, I mean, I think we like to think of the law as a meritocracy and those that are the best will succeed, etc. and will get picked up on and get noticed. But it can be the most traditional of professions. And it can be the case that, you know, people who, you know, to the surprise of many, are, 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 you know, regularly hired by kind of solicitors who seem to have a very strong loyalty to them. Isn't that, isn't that often the case? Oh, Maybe I, I'm getting into a little controversial no, territory I don't, here, Mark. No, I don't. What I would say to you certainly there is like, I mean, anybody you know, do like, they look around and say, you know, is this, I mean, like if you're, if you're managing a premiership team, like you'd put your best winger on the wing, wouldn't you? Yes, but I would have certainly considered that anybody that I've, uh, I've briefed would, would be at that pinnacle of their game. And I don't say that tritely. I mean, these would be people who, again, are, it's a different horse for a different course. It's no different than choosing a mediator. Like there are certain people who I would never attempt to bring a mediation to or nominate them as a mediator in any way, shape or form because you know in an instant they'll have no interest in that type of area. They won't have the temperament for the people whereas there are other people who are ideally suited for it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be particularly charming, nice to the people involved or otherwise, but they'll be effective. So what you don't want is you don't want a commercial mediator for a building dispute in Monaghan. And I mean, I'm in the very fortunate situation, I deal with both. And in the last term, I saw the different modus operandi of different mediators. And it's a real skill. And I was really slow to the party. Okay, good. And a really interesting, Barry. Sorry, Mark. Well, I wanted to move on to uh, point 18. Ireland is a brilliant venue for litigation. Discuss. Yeah, I say that in circumstances. Aside from the Ireland for law, that's what, that, it wasn't about that. Uh, again, most unusually given our size, the last year has brought me to various different jurisdictions on two different cases, a real privilege. Mm. But on the same hand, you do get to see how different things operate in certain places. I don't think we fully appreciate the quality of our own judiciary, mm. the quality of our court service. Um, not all the facilities are brilliant, but they're a damn sight better than a lot of other places. And having seen even London to an extent, but in particular, other jurisdictions where you'd see the Isle of Man was an eye-opener for me. It's like a provincial courthouse in, in an Irish town that hasn't been done up properly. Um, Malta, a further step backwards, Ireland in the 90s. And you sit and take a look at what we've got and what we can do. And hmm. um, I mean, there's a reason that the number of multinational firms have come to Ireland. And in my, I, I think that's a good thing. And so you, you, th- you think that our, our, our litigation system is serving the... The, the the end user, the clients, well, at all levels or particularly at commercial no, level? No, I, I think it has improved very considerably. Mm. Um, I think if you take a look at, and in fairness to the credit of the various people in charge of the lists, they have managed to move things along and it, you know, it makes our lives more difficult. But on the same hand, cases are getting on and Joe Public is getting into court and not only that, but they're seeing justice in action and if if you don't move, you have a problem. And in some respects, we can't, you know, cry that uh, there's such a backlog and then all of a sudden if we're presented with dates and you can't take them, like, you can't have it both ways. Absolutely, you've got to seize the moment. Will you tell us a little bit about your own firm, Barry, like the size of your own firm? You work in the commercial area and obviously you're you're swimming with with a lot of big fish in that pond. Yeah, not not that we deal exclusively in the commercial area. That would be, you know, 
I'd like to think that we do. We don't. I mean, we started out as an absolute traditional country firm, which was great. I mean, I cut my teeth in the district court going back 22 so years ago. You're a Sligo ago. man. I'm from right. Sligo. I'll, I'll always say, I mean, I'm hugely proud Sligo man. It'll always be home, but I'll never necessarily live there. And that would be the phrase that I have. But I mean, I love Sligo. I love going back to Sligo. We still have a great business in Sligo. Um, a lot of my very old friends are in Sligo and will continue to be the case. Um, I'm here about 10 years. So we have, you know, we're, we're, we're slightly light on numbers at the minute, but I mean, we have, you know, between nine and 10 solicitors at any given time. Okay. Of which there are five partners. And, and it's great and it's wonderful that you're doing your own thing and I, I wish you every success going forward and I've no doubt you being you, Barry, you'll keep the show on the road and it'll all be good. But we have had, let's say, discussions within this studio in terms of various shows. Uh, on one occasion we had Dominic Carmen who came over and he was doing a report engaging with all the big firms and he was predicting mergers between the big firms and they're all going to come together and it's all going to become a bit more competitive and bigger is better and you know, lunches for wimps, all that sort of stuff. And here you have a small firm uh, and you're doing okay and you want to keep it going. Um, just how do you see that in the context of, of these things that are happening? I think we're in a slightly fortunate situation that we're probably round long enough and we've got a particular market. So I know that there is a certain sector of the market that I knew 10 years ago. I was never fighting for. I mean, there are certain, you know, where you need scale to be able to do certain things. I mean, I'd eat a cross-border merger before I'd know what to do with it, to be really honest with you. Like, you look at other firms who manage to do it. That's, that's just not my area. I think a lot of the mergers which have taken place, will there be more? I think it will eventually come to a conclusion. I would certainly think if we've got a more choppy economic time ahead, it will be interesting to see what's the landscape in five years' time. I mean, what you can say at the minute is, like just before I come in here, we've got 12,000 people, I think, on the roll in Ireland at present in terms of solicitors. I don't think that includes the Brexit pass in terms of the, the number of UK people who, who came and qualified here but, uh, or got a practicing certificate but aren't necessarily in the role in practice here. I, I do think that will be interesting. I, I mean, I don't think you have a large firm in the world that doesn't have some level of base in Dublin. I know others who have obviously come, who've invested very significant money, who've developed fabulous teams. I think they'll be here for the long haul. I would have thought that anyone who's here now is probably here. I think if there's choppier economic waters, people will contract. And in many respects, awful as it sounds, we probably never did better than in the recessionary years, given the type of work that I did. And, and that was, you know, the recession was very good for us. Okay. And, and you know, sounds there you go. There, there, is a, and there, there is a tie that'll always rise about, isn't that it, uh, Barry? And obviously that one was a good one for you. Okay. You're a proud Sligo man. And, and why wouldn't you be one of the most beautiful towns in Ireland? Do you keep uh, your eye in with provincial solicitors, your colleagues who are running the traditional practices around the towns and villages of Ireland? The story is they're having a really difficult time. And yet, yeah, we, we keep talking about LinkedIn all the time, but you're just bombarded with ads for recruitment, recruitment, big salaries being pay, paid for people who have recently graduated and qualified. And then you go down the country and your traditional solicitor is struggling. What's going on? How do you balance that? I think there's definitely a two-tier market. But I mean, just again, there's 7,280 in the last Law Society report. There's 7,280 solicitors in Dublin. As matters stand, there's 131 in the county of Mayo. Like that's not proportionate in any way, shape or form. And we're lucky here on the basis that, look, it's the centre of economic activity. Um, I think it's a bit unfortunate that it's become so much that. I would have hoped that there would have been, again, from, from our perspective as a firm, it suits 
you know, for there to be balanced economic development and we're going into a political discussion here that's not intended. But yeah, I, I, I think life is more difficult. I'd have very good friends. I'd have much greater friends in terms of country practices than I've ever had in Dublin. And I mean, I talk to them. We would be very proud of the fact that if there's a country firm who needs something done in Dublin and they're stuck, yeah, I think that's, I think there's a collegiality. When you go beneath the surface of, of, of the profession, there is. Like people are still inherently good. Can you practice law at the level you want to practice outside of Dublin? And again, I'm reminded of Flora McCarthy, for example. Remember, we came into us when we were in Cork, Mark. You know, he is operating, he took over a family business in Clonakilty in beautiful West Cork, and he decided he wanted to be a med neg solicitor. That was kind of the area of law he was interested in. Surely not Clonakilty, there can't be a lot going on down there, Floor, not at all. He built up an online model that seems to have been very successful. So, I mean, is there going to be creative patterns? Go down to Castlebar, go down to Westport, and can you practice at the level well, that, that maybe someone like yourself would like I, to? I think it's possible, but your difficulty is, it, it will be, a, I think it's area dependent. I mean, for my particular area, it is sometimes reactive. So, I mean, if you're dealing with an injunction or something such as that, it is particularly difficult. And this is one of the reasons that I came to Dublin. I mean, I had one of the, probably an entire change of, of, of the trajectory of my career. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a really lonely professional day, but I had a really lonely professional day in, in March of 2010, when the then Mr. Justice Kelly wiped only the floor one, with me. Only one lonely well, professional no, it day. Was, it was one of those days where you, you look back and, you know, you lose your sea legs but it was probably one of the most important things that ever happened to me on my, you know, in my entire career because it was a day and I will always remember it. Paul Gardner in his own very inimitable style wrote to me after to say, a most unfortunate outing and what it was was a car crash. I learned we weren't prepared and that day, you know, I made an absolute promise to myself that I would never go into any court from a district court to a high court without being so as absolutely So it made you stronger, prepared. that's what you're telling us. No question. Barry. Okay, no, no question. very good. But Barry, oh sorry, Mark. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, you talk about the difficulties of of operating litigation from outside of Dublin. But I mean, we do at least have the advantage in, in Ireland that you can get to most towns in Ireland within a few hours. I mean, if you were in the north of east of England or in rural France, you, you wouldn't be able to get to your capital city as quickly. I mean, you could live in Sligo and travel up and down when you needed to. It's less than three hours. Yeah, I think with difficulty. I think in terms of the pressure that's involved in in court now. And I mean, I, I suppose I'm speaking with experience. Hmm. I mean, I tried it for a period in time. It's a long time ago now, but in hmm. some respects, um, it is easier to do it. Also bearing in mind, not exclusively, but certainly a large number of the council that I deal with and have instant access to are based in Dublin. The central offices in Dublin, we don't have electronic filing in any huge way, shape or form. I, I know in certain areas, but it is just, it's, it's, and I take my hat off, there's some brilliant practitioners down the country, some of them are friends of mine, who run, you know, super, you know, super practices in super areas. But I do think it's more difficult. Okay, probably certainly is. Barry, loads of food for thought. Your, your 20 points, where can you get those? That was a post you put out a long time ago. Is it is it up somewhere? Is it Ramblings of a Madman on LinkedIn is what it was. You haven't it on a t-shirt or no, anything, anything, have you? No, that would be the end no, of it now. Okay, well, that would, be, that, would, that would be great. Come here, I've really enjoyed our discussion. And I think you've given us, it's been it's been very broad ranging. It's been really, really interesting. Have you got a movie for us or, or a book that you could recommend to Yeah, yeah certainly in terms of the book is the most unusual one. It's by a guy called Ryan Gatt, Gattis and it's called The System. And it's all about the criminal justice system in the United States. Now, it's fictional, but it is just one of those books that has always stuck with me on the basis of what can go wrong. It's well worth the read. 
Beyond that, then, in terms of movie, there is a thing called The Lives of Others, which is a, an East German movie. Oh, yeah. about the famous yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. And I loved it. I think the it was, Stasi. you know, yeah, the good GDR. might eventually, you know, come to the top. I okay, hope that's great. No, no, very great. good. Barry, this has been really good. So Barry Creed, solicitor, thank you, thank you so both. much for coming very in much. and being a guest on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Solicitor Barry Creed, for coming in to us and telling us about the issues he's observed that are currently facing the legal profession. Mark, I think you really enjoyed this interview. Yeah, yeah, he, had, there was a lot, a lot, he said he had, a lot. He had great takes, mm. I have to say, mm. um, and a really interesting and, and spoke very freely. A really good guest, I thought. So before we go, can we just say thank you to our producer, Cunnel O'Moroin, and to the great Lee Brennan, who has recorded this programme for us. Uh, so for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we shall see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.